Our reading today is Psalm 8. O Lord, our sovereign, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You've set your glory above the heavens. Out of the mouths of babes and infants, you've founded a bulwark because of your foes to silence the enemy and the avenger. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars that you've established, what are human beings that you're mindful of them? Mortals that you care for them. Yet you've made them a little lower than God and crowned them with glory and honor. You've given them dominion over the works of your hands. You've put all things under their feet. All sheep and oxen and also the beasts of the field, the birds of the air and the fish of the sea. Whatever passes along the paths of the sea, O Lord, our sovereign, how majestic is your name in all the earth. So our text from this morning comes to us from the Psalms, which is a cornerstone of the Hebrew wisdom tradition. I love the Psalms because not only are they beautifully written, but they attempt to explore some of life's big questions through both poetic and metaphorical means. And this morning's passage is no different. Psalm 8 is one of the better-known psalms, perhaps because the reflections and the cries of the psalmist are just so relatable. In this psalm, the psalmist is having an existential crisis of sorts. When we turn to the text, The text reads, When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars that you have established, what are human beings that you are mindful of them, mortals that you care for them? Those of us in this room, I'm sure, are no stranger to those moments of awe, of wonder that strike us when we see our natural world. When we see an open blue sky in all its artistic majesty as the clouds float and transform and spark our imaginations. Or perhaps when we're hypnotized by the rhythm of waves on a shore. Or maybe when our breath is taken away at the sight of some of our planet's most iconic landscapes, such as Yosemite Valley or the Grand Canyon. Have you ever stood in the midst of such breathtaking beauty and wondered, like the psalmist, what are human beings that you are mindful of them, mortals that you care for them? That in the splendor of this beautiful universe, that you and you and you as well, we are all called beloved by the one who brought forth life. However, this morning, I want to focus not on this part of the passage, but on what comes after so that we can consider what its implications are for us today as 21st century people. In the continuation of this profession of wonder at, the, at humanity's plates in the midst of this universe, the psalmist continues. The text reads, Yet you have made human a little lower than God and crowned them with glory and honor. You have given them dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under their feet, all sheep and oxen, and also the beasts of the field, the birds of the air, and the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the seas. 
So on one hand, this proclamation is seemingly innocuous. The psalmist is just giving thanks to God for this unique role that humanity plays in the midst of this cosmos. But I think it's also important that we take a moment to consider the implications of this ideology, particularly as it comes to the idea of human domination over our natural world as something that is a God-given right bestowed upon humanity. This ideology permeates our culture and our world, the idea that humans are in a position of superiority over the rest of the created world. Within the biblical tradition, the origins of this human supremacy start very early on, uh, as early as Genesis chapter 1, verse 27. And this is the verse that the psalmist is actually directly referring to. In Genesis 1, on the sixth day of creation, God creates humanity and bestows upon the first people the image of God, which we call the Imago Dei. And the text reads, Then God said, Let us make humankind in our image, according to our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, birds of the air, over the cattle, all the wild animals of the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps upon the earth. So that comes as early as Genesis chapter 1. And it's this narrative of dominion that I want to confront today. The Western philosophical tradition, both with influence from Christianity and apart from it, has a long history of this idea of anthropocentrism, which is a big word that means the belief that humans are the most superior creatures on earth, that we're the most significant and important entity in the universe, or in other words, that the world really does revolve around us. So just my personal bias, I love church history. So I want to take us on a little journey through church history and the history of the Christian tradition this morning as we consider what this anthropocentrism looks like. Well, this, this ideology is not unique to Christianity, though. Uh, we do see that it is not necessarily inherent in human nature, for there are a lot of other theological traditions and religious traditions that don't see humans as the central power in our universe. There are religious traditions such as Buddhism, Jainism, Zoroastrianism, or some of the indigenous spiritualities of the American Indians. Even Judaism and Islam, Islam, which come from the same Abrahamic tradition as Christianity, don't have such a harmful legacy of anthropocentrism as we see in the Christian tradition. And even before Christianity, we can see this ideology at work. As early as 350 BCE, Aristotle writes in his Politics that we may infer that animals, uh, after the birth of animals, plants exist for their sake, that other animals exist for the sake of man. Now, if nature makes nothing incomplete and nothing in vain, the inference must be that she has made all animals for the sake of man. This legacy of a human-centered worldview where plants and animals and our very planet itself exist primarily for their instrumental value to humankind, uh, it continues to gain momentum and a foothold in the Christian tradition. In the early church, this concept of the Imago Dei serves as a centerpiece for the justification for human domination. And we see this in the discourse of the early church uh, patriarchs quite often. The early modern period did nothing to squelch this legacy in the Christian tradition. This Western conception that grew during this time 
uh, or that this Western conception of human superiority continued to grow during this time when we get the influence of uh, and focus on human reason and advanced human con- con- I'm sorry, cognition uh, as the quintessential characteristic of humankind over other living creatures. So for much of Christian history, the questions about the natural world that have come up have centered primarily around how we should use our resources, not necessarily whether we are even entitled to use them in the first place. And for much of human history, the impacts of humanity on our natural world were pretty minimal. The expanse of nature was seen as something as mysterious and unknown. And while humans learned to work the planet to ensure that we were able to survive, our impact that we had upon the natural world was relatively minimal. But with the rise of industrialization and globalization and exponential population growth, suddenly this human-centered ethic becomes much more of an issue. I should note that this is not the only story that we see portrayed through the Bible or through the Christian tradition. There has always been what we could consider a minority report of earth care in the Christian tradition. One of the primary leaders that we read about and hear about uh, is St. Francis of Assisi, who believed that Christians have an important duty to protect and enjoy nature, both as stewards of God's creation, but also as creatures ourselves. And there are many stories that center around the life of St. Francis, uh, and many more that arose after his death, and most of these have something to do with animals and the environment. So one of these stories, uh, it starts with St. Francis walking with some friends down a road. And as they're walking, they see a bunch of birds. And he stops his friends and he says, wait for me, I need to go and preach to my sisters, the birds. So as the story goes... The birds all stay put. He comes and he gives a sermon, and every bird is completely entranced with what he has to say, and none of them fly away during the entire time that he's preaching. So this is why when we see paintings of St. Francis, he's often depicted holding a bird, because he had this special relationship with the natural world and because of this story. Another perhaps apocryphal tale that we hear in Christian history is of the German reformer Martin Luther. So we don't know if this is actually true, but legend has it that one day Martin Luther was asked, what would you do if you knew the world was ending tomorrow? And his response was, plant a tree. So while we can hardly call Martin Luther an environmental activist, and I mean he had plenty of things going on during the Protestant Reformation to be taken care of, Uh, When he was asked this question, Luther acknowledged that caring for a living plant was a good in and of itself, whether or not we as humans were around to reap the benefits of its production uh, if the world were ending. And of course, there are other passages throughout the Bible that offer a different ethic to our human relationship to the natural world. There are a number of Psalms that speak about nature without even mentioning humans at all like Psalm 29 or Psalm 104. And there's another text from the Hebrew wisdom tradition, Proverbs 8, that tells the story of woman wisdom, who 
narrates the story of creation through her eyes. And she speaks of the abundant wisdom of the natural world before humanity was even created to explore its paths or uh, search its depths. We can be guided by the themes of love and justice and care that are all throughout the scriptures, especially in the stories and ministries of Jesus. As Christians, we believe that God is good to all and that God's compassion extends to all of creation. We have a hard enough time with this concept in relation to love and compassion for our human neighbor, but we can also challenge ourselves to extend these themes beyond ourselves to our partnership with the earth that the earth that gives us the gifts of a home, of food, and of anything that we could ever need. It's important also to note that this mastery and manipulation of the natural world is what keeps us alive in many ways. And so we can't necessarily consider it inherently bad. I don't know about you, but often when I see the immense city skylines or perhaps rolling hills covered in windmills, I have a similar experience to when I see natural beauty, when I am able to see how human innovation has changed our world. And in the Sacramento area, for example, we have our levee systems keep us safe and alive and keep our structures intact in many ways. Mining of energy sources like coal and drilling of oil has throughout history allowed us to explore and expand human possibility in infinite ways. However, In light of the good that has come from human innovation, I wonder how different our world might look today if our theological tradition had urged us to confront this legacy of human domination, of the human right to the earth. Might we have considered more carefully the impact on our planet and on our future generations due to our overexertion of the natural world? So is it true, we may be asking the question, in the eyes of God, are humans really superior to the rest of creation? Well, I would personally argue no. I, despite how I've just laid out this Christian history and this legacy of dominion that we can see in both the Bible and through Christian tradition, I would argue that the Hebrew text has a different connotation uh, that was put aside in, in preference of this dominion or ruler language. But whether or not I think that, this is the theological legacy that has influenced the world that we live in and the Christian tradition pretty immensely. But in the face of this question, I think that we can do ourselves a service to to shift the question just a little bit. So instead of asking whether or not humans are superior to the created world, I think we could ask ourselves, what is it that humanity has to offer to our created counterparts? What if instead of thinking of the Imago Dei as a free pass for dominion and superiority, what if we think of it as a reason for greater responsibility? Perhaps our role as humans is not to dominate our planet, but instead to take on a role of caretaker, of partner, to work alongside it, to love, tend, and care for it in the same way so that the earth is valued and respected as deeply as we believe that God values and respects humanity. The reality of anthropocentrism and this human-centered consciousness is beyond intertwined in our identity culturally as Americans. 
And much of a, the harm that has been accomplished because of this human carelessness is perhaps irreversible, or at least it's going to take a lot of work to reverse, which leaves us with the looming consequences of climate change in our path. But this morning, I would like you to consider how these narratives play out in your life, whether big or small, consciously or subconsciously. Where are the little moments in our lives where we can see this legacy of human dominion over nature playing out? How can we extend kindness and compassion that we have experienced in our lives to this planet that we call home? How can we challenge these feelings of supremacy or that it's our right to do with the natural world as we please? Because whether we like it or not, our misuse of the earth as a human race has led us to a place where our own destruction might be on the horizon. So how could we be mindful in these small moments when we see the tendency in our own lives towards this exploitation and instead turn as a spiritual practice to mindfulness for the gifts of the earth and what it is able to offer us? There are countless ways, both big and small, that we can take steps in our lives to confront the legacy of this human-centered ethic. One of the ways that you can do this is this morning, for as we are celebrating Social Justice Sunday here at Davis United Methodist, uh, you can gather uh, in the fellowship hall after service to write postcards to your senators and representatives. We, one of the prompts that we'll have this morning is demanding that our politicians create policy that takes realistic steps to reduce greenhouse gas emissions and stabilize global temperatures and to adequately support the communities that are hardest hit by the effects of climate change. While any of the acts that we might do individually and on our own might not feel like a whole lot to overcome this tide of climate change, I think that we cannot underestimate the importance of a shift in our own philosophy, in our spiritual posture towards the planet. That when we move ourselves away from this ideology that our planet is a bottomless pit of resources, that it may not empty our landfills, but when we change our hearts and minds in this way, it can serve as an inspiration to others to do the same. So as we go into this week, may we be inspired to acknowledge the own mo- our own moments of human-centered consciousness in our lives and perhaps shift our perspective in favor of all of creation, in favor of earth, sea, and sky, our animal neighbors in addition to our human peers. To wrap up, I'd like to share a reading from uh, Meister Eckhart, who's a 12th century German theologian and mystic, who was one of these figures in Christian history that often reflected the human relationship to the natural world and how we can consider these legacies of supremacy. He writes really beautiful writings. I would encourage you to, to look into Meister Eckhart. But if you all would join me as I read this final poem. Apprehend God in all things, for God is in all things. Every single creature is full of God and is a book about God. Every creature is a word of God. If I spent enough time with the tiniest creature, even a caterpillar, I would never have to prepare a sermon. So full of God is every living creature. May we live our lives in this way that we would value every living creature and perhaps even find a word of God in it. Amen.